everybody, and welcome back to the Data Bytes podcast. I'm your host, Sadie St. Lawrence. I'm happy to welcome to the podcast today, Lisa Thee. Lisa is the CEO and co-founder of MinerGuard. She's also an advisor for multiple AI startups and supply chain, social media, you name it. She's probably had her hand in every sector and industry. And she currently leads launch consulting data for good practice is a co-author, TEDx speaker, and podcast host of the Navigating Forward podcast. Welcome, Lisa. So excited to chat with you today. Oh, Sadie, I never leave a conversation with you without being energized. So I hope your audience enjoys hearing uh, some of your wisdom come out. Same. I, I know we had a, we were chatting before. We just were like, we got to record because this <laughs> we're going to talk forever. So yeah, so let's dive in because you have you know, what I would say, you're a multi-passionate person and have your hands in multiple things. So I'd love to know a little bit about your background to understand how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so I grew up in the Midwest um, in the suburbs between Ann Arbor and Detroit. Uh, I never moved outside of a 30 mile radius uh, until after college. Um, so in those foundational years, I was living in what I would deem kind of the Silicon Valley of the 50s uh, in America. I mean, it's where the auto industry rose up. A lot of people migrated there for better opportunities and better employment. And, you know, this whole ecosystem of, you know, the hustle, the immigrant mentality, the, you know, if you put in the work, it, you will reap the rewards, I think was really evident where I grew up. And from there, uh, after I left that area, I went into the tech industry after college and got exposed to the bigger, broader world. Um, and it was a really wonderful experience to be able to visit 36 countries before the age of 30 as an IT manager, uh, managing a global team. Uh, I got to see parts of the world uh, from people that actually lived in them, not from a resort or a sanitized version in travel. And I think, you know, getting that kind of exposure earlier in my life is paid off in spades in terms of being able to see things from different lenses and different perspectives. Um, I think everybody that I had the chance to work with was incredibly generous with their time and uh, welcoming. And it really helped me to expand past my very sheltered Midwestern upbringing. Uh, from there, uh, I have stayed in California and I'm now a married working mom raising kids. And uh, as you mentioned, I've done some entrepreneurial things along my journey after leaving corporate America. I'm now really enjoying helping uh, innovative startups in the healthcare and technology sectors to accomplish goals such as digital safety, uh, anti-toxicity, and healthcare innovation, giving better clinical support tools to medical professionals. Um, pretty much my why is anything that lifts vulnerable populations, whether that be women, children, or diverse populations, is the place where I want to focus my energy on building technology tools that can help the front lines make better informed choices at that moment of care. Yeah, so I'm starting to notice a theme on some of the guests I have about their experiences in the younger years, where maybe at first it was a little more sheltered, and then there was this trip that was life-changing to them and seeing new experiences. I definitely can relate to your story in that regard, and I think that's such a takeaway for people, too, is like if you're early on in your career, like just get out there and try new things. It doesn't have to be in your sector. I know COVID's dampen travel a little bit, but those experiences are what you'll really take for, you know, the lifetime of your career. So I'd love to dive in a little bit more to the vulnerable populations you serve and starting your company, Minor Guard, because you were quite established in your career, 
when you decided to step out on your own and start your own company? How did you come to that decision and how did you decide, you know, on the vulnerable populations that you serve? Sure. So when I, uh, I stepped into entrepreneurship at 40 years old, which is probably a little bit later than most people do that. Um, I would like to say that I had this strategic plan and ended up there with all this intention. That's just simply not the case. That's rewriting history. Um, I had a successful career uh, starting my work in the supply chain industry. I had an industrial engineering background doing that. Uh, then I moved into IT management. And from there, I left the tech sector to go work in the industrial automation sector to build my sales chops. So I sold services and support uh, for Rockwell Automation for about eight years in the Central Valley, um, which was a really cool place to do it because we grow 70% of the country's food all within this radius. So I get to go see how literally, if you like that show, How It's Made, that was my day job every day was helping those folks um, make it better. And uh, it also happens to include Napa Valley and some other really nice uh, wine and uh, craft beer industries that are in the area as well. So it was a lot of fun doing that. Uh, and then I came back into the tech industry to integrate those two worlds. So I was doing business development for our storage business at Intel. And that's where I learned a lot about data. I learned a lot about the power of big data. And I had the opportunity to see some of the work that Intel was funding in partnership with leading healthcare innovations uh, called the Collaborative Cancer Cloud. And so what they were doing was uh, being able to create confidential computing enclaves for uh, elite medical institutions to be able to combine data to show that um, treatments were effective on a minimum number of patients. So if you can think about it from this perspective, I don't need to see all your private information of your patients to be able to say that you had three patients that had this genome type that had this type of cancer that took this kind of drug and had positive outcomes. Uh, if I can query the data and get the number three back, that's really all I need to be able to publish my research or to be able to um, add that up with the number of patients I have at my institute to get to a minimum threshold to show something's effective. And so it was really eye-opening to see what the power could be unlocked with technology tools to help solve real world problems like that in healthcare. And uh, I got inspired to think, hey, if we can give uh, better personalized treatment to cancer patients and improve outcomes, what would happen if we took the same technology and applied it back to vulnerable populations like women and children? And that very much was inspired by my travel. I mean, being in those 36 countries, I saw some things that just fundamentally shifted my perspective about being a woman in the world. Uh, I think I grew up in a place that was pretty stable and I had a lot of opportunity and I recognized just how disproportionately lucky I was to be born where I was born at the time I was born with the opportunities I was born to. And it just never seemed like power for power's sake was my motivator. I wanted to make sure that if I was going to rise up, that I was going to lift others with me and seeing this huge amount of women that really just never had a shot <laughs> for mm -hmm. anything but being, um, meeting the needs of others uh, is just not the social footprint I wanted to leave in the world. So uh, we started working with some innovative human trafficking uh, startup companies and with bringing in our data scientists from Intel and our principal engineers to bring better technology ideas to bear in terms of scaling up in a cost-effective way. Um, the first of those companies was actually with uh, Marinus Analytics, uh, partnering with Emily Kennedy. I think you've had her on your podcast before. Um, so that started a long time friendship and journey uh, 
with Emily and I, and frankly, I can give her full credit for making me feel like I was wasting my life and my career uh, at 40 years old because she had accomplished more than I had by like 26 uh, in terms of social footprint and recovering human trafficking victims. And so, you know, about a year and a half later after I got the AI for Good Solutions owner practice off the ground at Intel uh, and we delivered our solutions to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children um, to accelerate them from a 30 day turnaround to a 24 hour turnaround for uh, a recommendation engine of where the reports of child abuse material likely originated from in the world. Uh, in partnership with the tech companies like Google and Microsoft, it just felt like a natural extension to step out of corporate America and continue that work because there was a lot more to be done in terms of protecting those children. Wow, that's, yeah, there's so many things I want to dive into there, but you know what I think would be really relevant for this audience is I know so many women in our community have a social focus and want to use their skills for good. And I really, that whole point when you came to the realization that like, I'm not using my life to have the social impact I want and time is short. So there's never a perfect time, but the time is now. And I think there's a lot of people out there who have an idea, know a population they want to serve, but one, getting that idea into action. And then two, the thing that I think as women, we don't like to talk about a lot is how am I going to pay for this? How am I going to support myself, support my family and, you know, fund a business is really where I think a lot of the fear comes in and we stop. So absolutely. You, know, you have this great <laughs> idea. I went through all those things. I can completely relate. Yeah. So um, I'll, I'll be really transparent with my journey because I don't want to sanitize it where people feel like if they don't have these like big epiphanies and magical like doses of, um, conquering fear, they can't succeed because it's just simply not true. Uh, I'm a fairly risk averse person. You don't end up in corporate America for 18 years uh, working for no companies below the size of 25,000 people um, being a huge risk taker. <laughs> that just doesn't happen. And so um, I can relate very much to being cautious about taking that step out. When I look at my journey, a lot of it makes sense in context. So one of the things I really liked about my first job working at Intel and I was there for my first seven years was that they really encouraged us to volunteer in the community and take some of our skill sets out into the world. So um, one of the more fulfilling projects that I worked on there was with a local nonprofit in Sacramento called Women's Empowerment. And we helped to formalize their training program to get women who are currently homeless uh, the skills that they needed to succeed in the workplace um, for technology on computers. And so for a few years, uh, I ran that program and, and scaled that up. And then I handed it off to a friend of mine, Marnie um, Dunn, when I moved on to a new job and she turned it into something just beyond my wildest dreams. And that's where I learned that I'm a really good get it off the ground person. I, I'm the innovator that can make the idea like really stick in the real world. But once it gets to a certain scale size, it's time to hand it off to the person that can grow it. And mm -hmm. so, you know, seeing that, that capability repeat in my work life over time um, is definitely a theme that I pulled from. I think secondarily, I noticed I almost always had a slash job. I had something on the nights and weekends that I did 
that had more of a social impact footprint than a paying the bills footprint. So I would work my day job to make sure that I had that security layer of financials and then a slash job to make sure I was filling my bucket in terms of mission. Uh, it was always vulnerable women and children for me, um, you know, being there to help somebody overcome the obstacles to the dignity of a paycheck is really important to me. It's probably from growing up where I grew up, I saw a lot of what happened to families and when the industry went away and all those attach rate jobs went away and how it disproportionately affected not only the people working, but everyone that is depending on them. And so um, I started doing internships and apprenticeships at like 15 years old. That's a, a very normal thing to do back where I'm from. I saw a lot of that missing in California and the tech industry. There just aren't as many opportunities for people to get in and get their feet wet. Um, I'm hugely passionate about giving people those opportunities. I worked with Society of Women Engineers, uh, helping to advocate for those kinds of things and helping people be aware of that for many years. I did a little side hustle as a recruiter just to get female engineering interns placed in real world work experiences so they could break into the industry. It's always been something that I'm really committed to. Um, and most recently I worked with Three Strands Global Foundation and Pride Industries to help them establish a human trafficking uh, program for recovered victims of trafficking to gain gainful employment in our community. And they place about 90 a year uh, in their Employee Plus Empower program. So, I think that, you know, when I converge all of those things together, it's always needing a little bit more mission in my life than what the day job offered. It's about being able to get things off the ground that haven't been done before. And it's a matter of making sure that I'm giving people the dignity to take care of themselves because that helps build families and communities and stitches back together the social fabric of things for marginalized people. So when I take all those three in combination, um, I find myself at the end of 2017. Uh, frankly, I was recovering from an unfortunate PTSD incident um, that I experienced uh, when I was doing my day job in Hawaii, uh, selling storage devices for the company I worked for. Uh, we were in an elementary school when it went into an active shooter active shooter situation. Um, we were having a regular world meeting at a conference room and then the principal got a call over the walkie talkie saying, there's an active shooter on campus. This is not a drill, um, lockdown. Uh, and you know, I, I had a big reaction to that. And I hid under the table in the fetal position and wrote a goodbye letter to my children and my husband. And you know, those two hours under that table waiting for somebody to get to our room, um, made me feel powerless. And it made me realize that things can shift on a dime. And I think that really strengthened my resolve to work on safety online for others because at the end of the day, I had no control over that, but I could do something to help move the industry in the right direction um, to be doing more, to rise to the occasion for people that can't really advocate or protect themselves. Yeah, that's... I think there's a lot to dive into here too, because, you know, it may, what I've realized over the years with working a lot of people, we don't know what's happening in someone's life. And so you had this really traumatic event where, you know, four I months before I had to send my oldest off to kindergarten myself. Yeah. Trained her to hide under the desk in case bad dogs or bad people came in the room the first week of school. It's just hard to feel like you're protecting your kid when that's the reality you're sending them into. 
And, and I'm sure people around you didn't know, not everyone knew you were going through this experience. Maybe you didn't even at first know how traumatic the experience was. So how did you get from a having this traumatic experience, having to re-enter the real world, send your own kid to a place that was the place you were victimized in and rising one above it for your own healing, but then now to a point where you're helping children and women in this place. Sadie, you're so insightful in that observation in that I didn't get diagnosed with PTSD until about a year and a half later. Although when I look at my medical records, I started exhibiting medical issues that are in my record like six weeks later. But I just thought it was, you know, I, I was working a lot. There was a lot going on. I didn't really do the math to figure that out. So the way that I ended up an entrepreneur was really getting to the point where I couldn't sustain my director level day job to earn the income, my nights and weekends job working with NECMIC, trying to get this tool deployed to help them accelerate the recovery of children that are being abused and managing my PTSD and my trauma triggers simultaneously without knowing that I had this condition or how to manage it well, Mm -hmm. Uh, which fortunately I'm I'm at a better place now. I, I know what I need to do when I'm feeling a little bit off, but at that time I didn't have that insight and I didn't even know I had a problem. But my husband observed that I was, um, not my usual self. And so he really encouraged me to start thinking about um, doing something on my own terms. Mm-hmm. And that's where the entrepreneurship really came in. I looked about around the corporate industry at that time, back in 2017, there weren't as many jobs as I see now in terms of data for good or AI for good. Intel had stopped funding the program because the executive sponsor had moved on to Google. And so if I wanted to continue working in the social impact that was important to me, I basically had to do my own thing. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time just socializing it with people in my network that were mentors of mine. One of them is uh, a gentleman named Greg Deshmaker. Uh, he runs the public sector business for Intel for his day job, for the sales organization. And so we collaborated on a day, day-to-day day, day job side. And uh, I'll never forget, it was around the holiday time of 2017. And I, I sat down with him for coffee and I was like, hey, I have this idea and I need you to tell me it's a terrible idea because I have young kids. I have a stable job. I just need to let it go. Like, this is just going to stress me out more. Like, tell me it's a terrible idea. And so I shared my idea for the vision for Minor Guard with him. And he said, if I come to your funeral and you tried this and it failed, are you happy you did it? And there was no question in my mind if I died without trying this, my life was incomplete. I knew that I was in a unique position in time to be able to have access to decision makers to help make a change here. I knew I had access to proprietary data that was not public information. And so I knew a lot more than the general public did about this crime and the impact it was having in the world. And I also knew just how rudimentary the technology tools that are being used by the people that have to serve this frontline population were. And I just, I really wanted to do something to leave a footprint of impact uh, to help the people that have to look at the worst corners of the internet all day long. And that's tech company workers, that's nonprofit workers, that's law enforcement, that's lawyers, that's, there are so many people that are affected by the secondary trauma of these crime scene photos of the abuse of children being socialized on on the public internet. We're not talking about the dark web here. 
mm -hmm. regular old internet for other people's entertainment. This just can't be an affordable cost of doing business. And so I decided to pivot my career focus from success to significance. And, you know, being deep in the data with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, I learned that 40% of the images that are taken and distributed around the world were taken by children themselves. And so it motivated me to want to help to reduce the volume of the information for the people that are looking for the children that need help immediately. Uh, and so I thought, I started my career forecasting the cellular market and supply chain for Intel. Back in the early 2000s, there was never a moment when we were saying one day they'll have colored displays and cameras that we were thinking we were ushering in a scalable solution for people with nefarious intent against children to have one of the most effective platforms to scale their bad intent of all time. And the trends of social and mobile and cloud made that a reality. Uh, last year, there were 21.5 million reports of the abuse of children online to the National Center. That included 65 million images and videos of the worst day of a child's life. This isn't a minor little blip of a problem mm -hmm. and it's been scaling up since the foundation of all of those trends. And so I knew that if we gave better tools to the good guys, um, we could help accelerate the um, recovery of these children and identify the people that are prolifically abusing them. Secondarily, I knew that if we could get 40% of the reports out of circulation because we don't let kids take nudie cutie photos with their phones mm -hmm. in the first place, like, why is this even a thing? Like, I, I think of my childhood, my analog childhood, <laughs> and what it would take to take an explicit image of myself and get it into the hands of an offender. Like, what was I going to walk into like CVS with my digital camera film or my roll of film and have somebody print that and then give it back to me and then I'm going to go give it like there's so many physical barriers that stop stupid things from happening that were just removed in the digital age and so we wanted to bring some of that wisdom back to digital devices and that was the spirit of minor guard was to make kids safer online and in real life by preventing them from being able to take and distribute explicit images when a 30-second decision could ruin the rest of their life. It can put them on sex offender registries. It can put them, you know, creating and distributing uh, material that's a felony. And, you know, we just didn't have enough rope to get ourselves in that much trouble. <laughs> no, and I love how you mentioned the fact of how technology has really enabled this. And, you know, we talk about how, you know, AI can be used to increase social disparities. And I think that's really well known, but I don't hear it talked about a lot with how technology is, you know, hurting children. And like you mentioned, you know, back in the analog days, those options just weren't there. And so you're taking something that what I look at as technology can either be used for good or bad. In this case, it's being used for good, but applying it technology to fight the evil that's happening and create solutions that make children and families more safe. Yeah, not every child is fortunate enough to be born into a functional family that can protect them. And even ones that are sometimes, unfortunately, in the world that we live in, um, the the parents aren't as technologically advanced as the kids in most cases, including myself. Um, so there's a lot of different ways that are out there for kids to make decisions that uh, honestly are totally a part of normal adolescence. Mm -hmm. 
but the consequences are disproportionately awful for them. And I actually feel terrible for this generation. Like we had so much more freedom to learn and grow from mistakes and everything they do is documented and tracked and videotaped. And, you know, the, the cycles of re-shaming somebody, re-humiliating someone, it's just, it, it makes me really saddened. So I get really um, prickly when pr people bring in these arguments around privacy and, you know, recognizing that anytime that you are enforcing end-to-end -end encryption and privacy, you're minimizing the impact that law enforcement can have to rescue children that are being abused. And what about their privacy? Why, why is your privacy more important than the privacy of a six-year-old that just had the worst day of their life mm -hmm. put up and for the world. doesn't have a voice, you know, who, who no voice. Be even in, in the argument. So I know probably a lot of parents right now are going, oh my gosh, like this is, they probably already know it's happening, but what recommendations for parents who do care out there who have children, what recommendations do you have that they can take to help protect their kids? Absolutely. I've got five key recommendations I'd love to share with your audience. Number one, uh, charge your phones outside of bedrooms. Mm -hmm. uh, just like in the real world, nothing good happens after midnight. <laughs> Number two, um, make sure that if you do find that something's going on uh, with your child's digital life of uh, making poor choices, you don't freak out and steal their phone away. Remember that you're there to help them make affordable mistakes and learn the lessons from them. You're not gonna be there once they turn 18 to regulate everything. And so this is the digital age we live in and they're gonna to have to get accustomed to making mistakes and then recovering from them. And if you don't set context for them, the internet does. And trust me, you have better wisdom than the internet. Uh, it will lead them down the wrong path. So you wanna make sure your kid feels safe talking to you about it. Um, third, I will say is the wait until eighth campaign, I think is a wonderful pledge. Uh, you know, the brain, the human brain isn't fully functioned to understand long-term consequences until 24. Um, so, you know, giving kids phones at 10 years old with unregulated access to the internet and social media is just, it, it's like giving your kid a gun and dropping them in a pool and hoping they can tread water and not shoot themselves. It's like, this is not realistic expectations for somebody at that age of development. So I really like some of the solutions that are coming onto the market, things like the gizmo phone, things like the Gab wireless phone, where they can have the access to make the phone calls and do the texting, but they don't have all of the access to the adult world of content online. Um, so having a, a better first phone is an option. And then the wait till eighth campaign for a more fully featured smartphone, I think is a, a better solution. Um, I like monitoring solutions like Bark. Uh, once you do decide to give them uh, social media, it allows you to give them as much privacy as they can earn uh, because the AI is doing the, the sorting for you and letting you know problems of cyberbullying, suicidal ideation, sexting, um, grooming, all, all the things that you have to be a little bit more aware of because they can go from being affordable mistakes to lifelong consequences if you can't intervene at the right times. Um, so those are the things I like. And then last but not least, this is something my kids are so sick of hearing from me and I will share it with you so you can make them super annoyed too. This works well for little brothers and sisters, uh, nieces and nephews, everybody can nag each other. Um, I'm really a fan of technology drills, just like we do for tornadoes or earthquakes or other kinds of events. Um, the drill that I do with my family is the stock, walk, talk drill. Mm -hmm. 
when they are online and they see something that makes their, them feel uncomfortable anywhere in their body, I remind them to stop, walk away from their device and talk to a trusted adult. Mm -hmm. Secrets can't live in the dark. It's important to bring light to dark spaces. A lot of predators use techniques to make kids feel like if they tell somebody that there's gonna be huge dire consequences. And I wanna remind my kids that there's nothing they can tell me that I can't handle. And there's nothing that's going to happen to me as a result of them doing that, because that is, mommy's got better friends in law enforcement in high, high places than these criminals. Um, and, and so it's important to catch things early. Most of these people that are doing these techniques, um, it's a slow process of breaking down boundaries with your kids. Uh, it doesn't happen overnight. You don't need to do it perfectly. You don't need to know everything. You don't need to be paranoid about it. You just need to make sure that you get an early enough signal to be able to be like, yeah, not my kid. Cause these people are lazy. They're, they're trying to do it to like 300 kids at the same time. They're looking for the most vulnerable child in the population. They're not going to go after our recording. Okay. Yeah. They're not going to go after a hard target. So they're looking for vulnerability. They're lazy. Um, and so as long as you have a, a dog in the fight of being the guardrails for the digital child, digital life of your child, you're probably going to be in a pretty safe position. Well, I appreciate you giving those tips. I know I learned a few things. I'm definitely going to try even the, the digital drills. It's such a great insight. I mean, we all did the fire drills when we were growing up. And I mean, even now today as an adult, there's still things that make me feel uncomfortable. And I think just that reminder of like, hey, listen to your body, listen to how you're feeling take a second, pause, and then share it with some a trusted person. Um, because like you said, nothing, no, nothing good happens from those secrets in the dark. So I appreciate you coming on today, Lisa, sharing your wisdom. I've been inspired. Um, and if others have been inspired and want to start their entrepreneurship journey, they've been sparked by passion, I'm really happy to share that Lisa and Emily, both who have been on the podcast, have a course called Spark Passion, and it is in the Women in Data portal, and we have a 50% discount for that that I'll leave in the show notes. Um, so definitely, if you're inspired, take the course. It gives you all the, the steps you need and the wisdom of these two ladies and how to start your entrepreneurial journey and leave a social impact for good. Yeah, Emily and I were really inspired to do this together because we came to entrepreneurship at very different seasons of our lives. So we wanted to make sure it's available to everybody, no matter where you were in your in your season of life. I also want to highlight for people that uh, if you really like the security of a day job, you can use our course to become a more effective entrepreneur as well. What we're really trying to do is turn you from being somebody that's executing someone else's vision into somebody that's creating your own and leaving that, that footprint. And that's the goal of our class. And it's bite-sized digestible pieces of things we wish we knew when we started off um, to make it a little bit easier. And uh, hopefully it makes it easier for the next innovators that are gonna come behind us. Perfect. And if you want to read more about Lisa, find out all the awesome work that she's doing, you can check out her website, lisathee.com. Um, also find her on LinkedIn or listen to her podcast on Apple Podcasts and Audible. Um, any other ways that you'd like to refer people to connect with you, Lisa? Uh, I think those are a really good start. So the Navigating Forward podcast from Launch Consulting is discoverable on all the places you find it um, that you mentioned. And uh, the rest of the stuff can be found on LinkedIn or our website. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Sadie.